Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, the first chapter, the first 18 verses. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word as it's found in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And this morning I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. May the Lord bless the preaching, the reading of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, and that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, even as we honor you more along the path of life. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who together with you and the Holy Spirit reigns as one God forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, when uh, Clayton greeted me this morning, he said, so you're preaching from the New Testament this morning. Um, And it reminded me of a time when I was preaching in another congregation, and uh, because most of the time I preach from the Old Testament... And I just kind of jokingly said, I do read the New Testament once in a while. And uh, the pastor got an angry email from a parishioner wanting to know why he let somebody preach who never reads the New Testament. Well, I do read the New Testament, and, uh, but, but this is a little bit uh, out of the ordinary for me to be preaching uh, from the New Testament since I spend most of my time uh, in the world. We're continuing our short series on the mystery of the Trinity. Uh, We looked at one kind of broad brush uh, sermon 
on the, the uh, Trinity in our liturgical worship. Well, we're going to the other end this morning, and we're going to just focus our attention on one verse. And that verse is John chapter 1 and verse 18. The only begotten God. We use the Nicene Creed this morning. And in the Nicene Creed, we confess that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten and not made. And yet, probably for many of us, as we read our New Testaments, the Gospel of John in particular, the language of begotten is gone. It's disappeared which is why I use the New American Standard uh, translation this morning. The only begotten Son of God. Every phrase in the Nicene Creed is carefully crafted. Begotten from the Father. Have you heard of the doctrine of creation ex nihilo? Does that Latin mean anything to you? What's ex nihilo mean? Out of nothing. Jesus is not ex nihilo, Jesus is ex patre. He's not from nothing, he's begotten from the Father. He's begotten, not made. He's begotten of the Father before all worlds, eternal. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father, the Son and the Father are one. But the Son is not the Father. An error that arose early in Christianity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as one God really just were three different manifestations of the one being but not three persons in one God. This morning we're just going to look at John chapter 1, verse 18. The Son is the only begotten God. There are really four segments in this verse, and so I have a very un-Presbyterian four-point sermon. Okay, here's my first point. No one has seen God at any time. That's how the verse starts. No one has seen God at any time. Now, the invisibility of God is a theme that runs through the Gospel of John. For example, John 5, 37. The Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice nor at any time seen his form. And of course, the reason for this is John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The invisibility of God, nobody can see God. And of course, this isn't simply speaking of a physical seeing, while that's included. Have you ever heard somebody say, yeah, I see what you're saying, Well, they didn't see the words coming out of your mouth. What do they mean when they say, I I see what you're saying? I understand it. I comprehend it. 
And the fact that nobody can see God in his invisibility is related to the fact that nobody can fully comprehend God in his incomprehensibility. And of course, that makes perfect sense. If God is finite and we're infinite, how would we think that we can understand God fully? And yet, we can understand God truly, though never fully. And so John develops this theme of the invisibility of God in general, but in our particular text, the invisibility of God is in relationship to Moses in particular. Uh, Did you notice that in verse 17? In verse 17, for some reason, John just says, and it seems like it's a meteor that just fell out of the sky, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Why bring up Moses? If you think of the Old Testament, you think of many heroes, yes? I mean, you think of Adam, you think of Noah, you think of Abraham, you think of David, you think of Solomon, you think of great King Josiah and his Reformation, you think of Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Many great heroes. But the greatest of all human actors on the stage in the Old Testament is Moses. Moses is the greatest. And when Jesus comes into the world in the first century, he comes into a religious environment where Moses is held in the highest esteem. And that's why John references Moses right before saying, no one has seen God at any time. Think about Exodus 33, verse 19 and 20. God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord to you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. Moses, the greatest saint in the Old Testament, And God says to him, you cannot see me. And if Moses cannot see God, how do you and I ever expect to be able to see God? This is why John brings up the invisibility of God in relation to Moses. Of course, John's going to answer that question for us. In John 6, 4, for example, he says... Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is ex patre, the one who is from the Father. He has seen the Father. Not Moses, not the greatest saint in all of Old Testament history, but Jesus. Jesus has seen the Father. And this is coupled with why the author to the Hebrews says something like in Hebrews chapter 3, 5, and 6, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ was faithful as a son over God's house. Moses is in the house, the greatest Old Testament saint, in the house as a servant. But Jesus far transcends Moses. 
Jesus is not in the house. Jesus is over the house. Jesus is not the servant. Jesus is the son. And as we're going to see, he's the only begotten son. And so my first point simply is no one has seen God at any time. Not even the greatest Moses. Oh, except, of course, Jesus. Now, my second point, the only begotten God. Now, we have a couple of kind of, we're in a sticky wicket here. I've had like Australians explain to me where that expression came from, and I still don't get it. Um, It has to do with uh, cricket. Cricket? Yeah, cricket. And a wicket. And sticky, and I, I don't get it. I don't get it. We know what it means, though, right? It's a little challenging here. We've got to ask, a answer, ask and answer a couple of questions. First of all, should we be reading only begotten or one and only? A little bit of Greek. Uh, everybody say monogenes. Okay, the mono is like in monotheism, one God. Um, monocycle, one wheel. The genes is in like generate, produce, uh, monogenes. And the question is, what's this Greek word mean? Well, let's look at our translations. Um, Does anybody have a King James? Is the king in the house? We have the king in the house. Thank you. Um, How about the New American Standard? I know we got at least one here because Clayton is is a fan of the NASB. We've got another NASB back here. We've got a third NASB. Now, if you're reading the King James or the NASB, you're reading, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. If you're reading one of these like newfangled translations, the NIV or the NLT or the ESV, you're reading not that Jesus is the only begotten, but that he's the one and only Hence, in most of our translations, the Nicene Creed language has disappeared of the only begotten God. We're reading uh, of one and only nowadays. So we have to decide out of the possibilities, because when, you, when you're in a Bible study and somebody says, well, my translation says only begotten, and somebody says, my translation is one and only, those are pretty different. You've got to make a decision as to which one it is. And so... Uh, There have been long academic papers written on this question. I'm not going to give you the full detail of all of this. I just want to give you a couple of reasons why I think we need to stay with the king, why I think we need to stay with the old Latin Vulgate, why I think we need to stay with the Nicene Creed and keep only begotten. Uh, Just two things. One, there's no really good argument against it. The arguments that were offered that turned the tide in modern scholarship, those arguments just are not persuasive. This is, this is, I'm going to try to make this not too technical. That genes part. In the word monogenes, there's only one end. But in the word for beget, there are two ends. So what do we conclude? This monogenes is not from the word beget. That's the simple argument. It's not a good one. Uh, And the reason why it's not a good one is that there's a plethora of words in ancient Greek that are clearly from the 2N word, but there's only one N. I'm just going to give you one example. There's a word, neogenes. Anybody know what neo means? New. 
what would a, what would a neogenes be? A newborn, a newly begotten. And you can multiply examples. Simple point is, everybody said it can't be begotten because there's only one in. Just not the case. There's no good reason for shifting away from the language of only begotten. My other point is, there's good evidence for staying there. From the context, only begotten makes much better sense in the context than one and only. John's point is not that Jesus is the only God in relation to other gods, because that might lead you to think that Jesus is the only God even in relationship to the Father, in whose bosom He is. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is not that He is God in contrast to other gods, the only God. His point is, John's point is, that Jesus is begotten of the Father. And since He's begotten, ex patre from the Father, he's God. And because he is God, he and he alone is able to make God known. And of course, there are related texts. One is uh, 1 John 5, 18. Turn to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. Same author as the author of the Gospels. And in 1 John 5, 18, we read, We know that no one who is born of God, that's you, that's me, those are the believers. Believers are said to be born of God. No one who is born of God sins. But he who was born of God keeps him. That's referring to Jesus. We are born of God, and Jesus is born of God. Now, I often have said that reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. And there's something that we don't see when we're reading this text in English. And that is that while John uses the same word for believers being born of God and Jesus being born of God, he uses a different tense in Greek. He uses the same word because you, like Jesus, are children of God. But he uses a different word for Jesus because Jesus is unlike you. Because Jesus is monogamous. Jesus is the only begotten God. So my first point is, Nobody has ever seen God at any time, not even Moses. So how can we hope to see God? Oh, but Jesus has seen God. Jesus is the only begotten God. So what we've seen so far is that when we have a choice to make from our translations, only begotten or one and only, we stay with the tradition of the church through the generations of only begotten. But then is he the only begotten God or is he the only begotten son? Here again, when we look at our translations, uh, the NASB says only begotten God. The ESV refers to God. The NIV refers to God. Sorry about the king. The king missed it this time. But as I say, even Homer nods. Uh, the, The King James says son here, not God. 
And the King James is following the old Latin Vulgate, which says son. So again, is, we got a number of possibilities. Is, is, is he the only begotten son or the only begotten God? Or is he the one and only son or the one and only God? So far, all I want to say is he's the only begotten. And here I want to say he's the only begotten God. Not, is John saying, the only begotten son, though that certainly is true. Why do we vote for the NASB and God? Well, you know, we have thousands. We have thousands of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. And some of them are better than others. And when we look at the ones that are the very, very best manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, the oldest and the best, they all say God. That's pretty weighty in my estimation. But in addition, what makes best sense in the context? God. Do you remember uh, John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. uh, John, in the 1 to 18 is a unit. That's why we read the whole thing. How does the unit start? The Word is God. How does the unit end? Jesus is the only begotten God. Nice Hebrew literary technique. You start and stop on the exact same note, sometimes, however, with a little bit of additional information. Remember Psalm 8. How does Psalm 8 start? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How does Psalm 8 end? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hebrew mothers taught their kids to repeat their vocabulary so that people would get the point. And so, verse 1, the Word is God. Verse 18, the Word is not just God. The Word is the only begotten God. Third point, who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, that's language you don't hear much these days. Who is? The participle here is a kind of, a, it's a present, temporal participle, and it could very well be alluding to the eternality of Jesus. Notice it doesn't say who was in the bosom, who will be in the bosom, but who is. As we sing, as it was and is, and ever shall be. Remember in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, not I will be, simply I am. Something that only someone can say who always was and always will be. But be that as it may, It's fairly clear what John means when he says, in the bosom of the Father. Now, bosom is not a very common word. You probably haven't heard it on TV lately. It's not in your major commercials. Uh, You don't hear people talking about a bosom in the uh, uh, grocery line at Publix or Winn-Dixie. This Greek word is related to a Hebrew word, and it means a variety of things. It can refer to the breast-chest area. It can refer to the abdomen area. It's used of the lap. But obviously, God doesn't literally have a bosom area, right? Because God is spirit. 
So we're speaking of being in the bosom metaphorically. What's that a metaphor for? Well, a couple of things here, and certainly one of them is intimacy. In Genesis 16, 5, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your bosom. Intimacy of the deepest kind in the human experience. Or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather his lambs and carry them in his bosom. Affection. Intimacy. Affection. That's what it means when the only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father. There is an intimacy between Jesus and the Father. There's an affection between Jesus and the Father that far transcends any affection you have ever experienced. That far transcends any intimacy you've ever experienced. Because this intimacy, this affection between the Father and the Son is not only eternal, but it's infinite. No wonder no one has ever seen God at any time. I have no idea what I just said to you. (laughs) Because we're trying as finite people to have some kind of glimpse of who Jesus is in relation to his father. And so John gives us this beautiful metaphor of the son sitting on the lap of the father, sharing in most deep intimacy and affection. Well, let's go back to that John 1 was the word. John 18, begotten God. Notice in John 1 it says the word was with God. But, you know, you can be with people in a whole variety of ways. Uh, Yesterday, I was with a bunch of people at a parade, and they were complete strangers, right? I was with a bunch of strangers. Last night, I was with my wife. With strangers, with my wife. It's both with, but it's two completely different experiences, right? So what does John mean when he says the word was with God? He says, I'll tell you what it means. It means that he was in the bosom of his father. So while 1 and 18 wrap this whole text up, 18 gives us so much more of a personal picture of what it means that Jesus throughout all eternity was with God. He was with him in deep intimacy, in deep affection. Nobody knows the Father like the Son who through all eternity was in the bosom of the Father. As one commentator says, this is simply a way of expressing the closest possible relationship between Father and Son. Well, we're at my last point. And my last point, I know you're going to be surprised. My last point is he has explained him. Now, it's interesting that um, 
that there's kind of a break in the language, in the sentence, in, in this particular verse. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that one, says John. He wants to make sure he points to him. That one has explained him. He has explained him, which is what our translations say is fair enough, but it misses that, I want to put this in bold, I want to italicize it, I want to change the color of the font on this one, that one, no other one, not Moses, not Elijah, not Elisha, not Josiah, not Abraham, not Noah, none of these Old Testament saints has been able to explain the Father. That one that has been in the bosom of the Father with the deepest intimate and affectionate relationship throughout all eternity, that one has explained to us who the Father is. He's explained him through his person. The Word is God. He's the only begotten God. We must continue our profession of faith that we believe as we confess this morning that Jesus is very God of very God. He's the true and He's the living God in His person, the only begotten God. But Jesus has also explained Him, that is the Father, through His work. Uh, John chapter 10 and verse 38. John chapter 10 and verse 38. Starting in verse 37, and had we had time, we could look at this text in greater detail. But starting in verse 37, Jesus says, If I do not do the works, see, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Now notice it's Jesus doing the work, but whose works are they? They're the Father's works. So are they Jesus' works or are they the Father's works? Yes, Then Jesus goes on and says in verse 38, But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The Father and the Son are one. And Jesus himself says in John 10.30, notice how many times I'm quoting from John because this is John's big theme. In 10.30, according to the uh, Gospel of John, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And that can be said by no one else. Moses could say, man, I, I have such a great relationship with God. Moses could say, I am unique among the prophets. To all the other prophets, God reveals himself indirectly. But to me, God reveals himself directly. I am the greatest of the prophets. Moses could not say, the Father and I are one. Only Jesus can say that because Jesus only is the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. Well, let me conclude. 
Uh, this is actually a Christmas sermon, believe it or not, although I haven't mentioned Christmas yet. Because what I have been trying to share with you, as detailed as it might seem, is simply the miracle of Christmas. The miracle of Christmas. The invisible God whom no one can see has become visible to you and to me. We, we can now see the Father. Back to John chapter 14 verses 7 through 9. Jesus says to his closest disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can Jesus say, He who has seen me has seen the Father? It's because He understands the miracle of Christmas. He understands that He is the only begotten God. To God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take this one verse from the Gospel of John and my feeble attempt to try to explain something of the mystery of who you are. And we pray that you would uh, fill our hearts with, uh, with rapturous awe and delight this Christmas season as we celebrate the mystery of how Jesus, the eternal God, was begotten of the Father. We pray that as we grow in our understanding of who you are, we would grow in our awe for who you are, in our reverence for who you are as our God, in joy that we have the privilege by your grace that is ours in Christ to be able to say we have seen the Father. We have seen the one whom no one has ever seen as we look into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that we might live out lives of gratitude to you that shows itself in how we conduct ourselves in thought, word, and deed, because we know that Jesus is the only begotten God, now and forevermore. Amen.